0: Here we go. Nice and quiet.
1: Sound speeds, camera rolling.
2: Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And
1: set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
2: Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ulrich Purcell. I'm Liz Manichelle. This week, we welcome writer, director, Amber Seely to the show to talk about her film career and the making of her upcoming film, No Man of God. And I mean, I know what you're gonna say, but I have to say Amber was like, just a delight. What a wonderful conversation we had with her. It was fantastic.
2: I still love Amber, I love her. And she and I have had a few conversations since about mentorship and fellowship programs. And she's, um, I think you say this on the show, but she's like a wealth of knowledge. She's just like a fountain. She's an ocean of knowledge.
1: I feel like I could have talked to her for like three hours, (laughs) like easily and and not run out of questions to ask her or things to talk about because she's got so much information and she's been doing it for for a while and she's made so many movies. And it's like, I feel like she's totally inspirational to like where I want to be, you know, in the future and like what I want my career to look like if I'm so lucky.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. But before that, Ulrich. yeah. You've got mail.
1: Oh, really? I've got mail. Sweet.
2: Yeah. It's always you. And you've got it.
1: I've got it. Okay. <laughs> my
2: breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. So a few weeks ago, we reviewed Brittany Simon's short, Goodbye. And I will just out myself right now. I think I was It's like a little bit too constructive, if we're going to put it that way, just a little negative. And we put it out into the world. And then Brittany responded, and she responded in the most open, kind, receptive way. And I wanted to read her email so that people, A, know how wonderful she is, but B, she did answer a question about, was there a purpose to some of the characters going through punishing, physically punishing circumstances in her horror short. And, and I think she addresses it quite well. So I'm just gonna read it. Um, hi, Ulrich and Liz. First, thank you so much for having me in the podcast and for taking the time to watch Goodbye. Liz, I'm so sorry that you weren't a huge fan of the film. <laughs> like she's just a saint. Um, I was very happy to hear that the film put a smile on your face, Alrick. Uh, It's never easy to hear that someone doesn't like your film but I really do value the feedback you guys gave. It definitely provided me with things that I should work on when I make my next film. And you also asked some questions that I maybe hadn't asked myself before. So I'm excited to take your feedback and apply it to my future films. I know you weren't huge fans of the fact that there wasn't a major takeaway from the film and I could totally understand that. I really didn't have a takeaway in mind when I wrote it. So even though this was disappointing, it is the truth. Something that you pointed out that I thought was great feedback was even if there isn't a deeper meaning to the film, at least give some background as to why everything is happening or make the payoff so good you don't even care. This is definitely something I will need to work on with my future projects. At the end of the segment, you asked when this was filmed. We filmed Goodbye in mid-September of this year, so you were correct. We did make this during COVID times. We actually released behind the scenes of the first day of shooting on the Thinking Art Entertainment YouTube channel. And she provides a link, and we'll provide a link for y'all. Uh, Again, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time to watch Goodbye and provide thoughtful feedback. I love what you guys do. Hopefully I can be on the podcast again in the future with another film and maybe Liz will like it, guaranteed. uh, I will love it. Even if I don't love it, I will say that I love it because the (laughs) point of this is to support filmmakers and it drives me nuts that I I took the bait. I took the bait. But that was really nice of you, Brittany. And we wanted to make sure that we um, are amplifying you as an artist. So we just wanted to read that so you can speak from the heart about why you made the project.
1: Yeah, no, I, I like how open she is and how she talked about, you know, that she didn't have, have a big meaning or message behind the movie when she wrote it originally, which, which is interesting, you know? Um, Cause I don't know if I necessarily do when I first write something, but then it's like something that you kind of find as you write, you know? And even if it's not a big message, it's, it's like a small message. Like, you know, don't be a dick. That's like what most of my movies are. <laughs>
2: that's a good message that's a message worth telling I think
1: yeah or if you're if you're going to be a dick you're going to get eaten by a monster um you know those sort of things (laughs) but yeah no this is great and I I wonder like what other people would think like about this like having if you if you listen to our you know segment on it watch the movie or in in either order and then like what do you agree with us? Like, or are we missing the the mark completely? Like, you know, is our advice worth Brittany taking? Like, you know, I'm I'm just curious because I, I watched some other movie um, that was like, oh man, it was like a fancy short film because I was watching short films yesterday, like getting ready for our get shorty segment, and it was like this one that was commissioned by somebody and it was like a fancy UK like filmmaker made it and it like had a real budget, it was like shot on film, like the RZA was in it, it was like this huge thing and it had no point to me at all. But uh, I was almost gonna suggest it to you for the show and then I watched the whole thing and I was like, no, no, this is just fluff, but anyways.
2: Cut to British filmmaker listening to this, be like, that's my film. And
1: <laughs> yeah, that's my she, <laughs> she probably will not care. She seems highly paid. She does commercials for Dior. Uh, she probably does not give two fucks oh, about fancy. this. <laughs> and she got to work with the So, you know, whatever. She's doing pretty good. She's doing okay. But yeah, if you want to be like Brittany and go through this, this is a whole process though. This wasn't just, she didn't just email us. She sent in a short film. We talked about it and then she emailed us responding to it. So there's a lot of levels of interaction here, but if you want to, you know, send a question, a comment, a short film, whatever suggestion you can email us to podcast at making is hard.com. Or if you really love the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the other places you can leave reviews for podcasts. We also have a Patreon page. So if you really love the show and you want to support us, you can go over there to www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can give us a buck, $5, $4, $9. $4 is a sticker, right, Liz? Is that the deal?
2: Yes. Yes. I will say this with more confidence this time. It is a sticker.
1: And then nine is a pin, right? Yes. Okay, cool.
2: And $1 is our everlasting love and gratitude.
1: Which is amazing. You know, like... Anyone who gives a dollar, I like I feel so much love from that person who's like taking the time to go on to Patreon, <laughs> click a dollar and then a dollar comes out of their bank every month. Like that's like amazing that people do that. So thank you. And lastly, make sure to jump over to our Instagram page. You can click the link to, in our bio and then you'll find our YouTube page. It was going up like this and now it's sort of like this. It's like plateauing a little bit, but we're at like 170 subscribers. Our goal is to get to 200 by January 1st. So we basically want to do this for the end of the year, the last couple of weeks. So uh, see if you can make that happen.
2: You can only see what Alric's doing if you watch the YouTube. We're not going to tell you what he's doing. we making
1: all kinds of hand graphs and motions and things um, that you can only enjoy if you're on the YouTube page. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Liz, I think uh, it's time to talk about something else. It's time to talk about Get Shorty. Get Shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie.
2: Before we get into this, I just want to say something so the whole world knows. Because we get a few comments that are like, Oh, I really love how you support and um amplify women's voices. But I want to say that Alric chooses the shorts. Like, I mean, like, I will be like, oh, I don't want to do that. But like we just talked about Brittany Styman, who's a female creator we're gonna focus right now on Courtney Theron who's a female creator um, we had, like the next three interviews are women directors and like I think people may attribute this to me auric just because I've got a vagina but I just want people to know that like all of this, is you amplifying women's voices and making sure to make them a priority. So we could get on and talk about Courtney Theron's rehearsal film, which was amazing, but you deserve a little credit and doing your part in supporting women here.
1: Wow, well, no, my pleasure. And I mean, it, you know, it's also just like the emails that we get. Well, I won't watch them all at once, but I'll watch them when I'm looking for one and I'll watch until I find one I like. And sometimes it'll be the first one and I'll just like it and I'll be like, okay, this is the one we're going to do. Sometimes I have to watch two or three before I find one that I like. But I watched, I think I watched four yesterday and the ones that I really wanted to to focus, it was, yeah, it was Courtney's. And then, yeah, we're going to do another one for next week for Debbie. Debbie Bradshaw. Totally amazing movie. And so I'm, I mean, it's, it's really great that I'm getting to amplify, um, you know, women's voices, but it's also just because they're making great movies. So it's definitely a little bit of both. I mean, cause I wouldn't just put a, a film, female filmmaker on the show with any movie, like, you know, it has to be a movie worthy of discussion, but yeah, I think it's just been really nice that it has been a lot of women lately, which is great. This is a complete tangent. <laughs> And I don't even know if we should include this, but I just want this has been on my mind. Um, I saw, I don't know where it was. It was on Twitter or Facebook or something, but someone was talking about their movie and they were like, yeah, and we have like, you know, 80% uh, female crew. And it's not because it was some initiative, it was because those are just the, my first choices of who I want to pick. And it's like, That's a wonderful thing to say. I think you know. Sure, if your first picks just happen to be women, that's fantastic. But I also feel like when you say something like that, you're you're kind of making it feel like if you are trying to make it an initiative, that it's bad for some reason. And I don't want people to ever think that going after you know uh, like a different variety of crew members would be women, people of color, whatever, is ever bad. Like like if you are doing it just because you want to, and because you're trying to, you know, include women, include people of color whatever, you know, you've worked only with men before, or you mostly worked with men before, but you're trying to bring more women in and like, you're specifically doing it because they're a woman. Like, is that a bad thing? Liz? I don't, I don't think it is. Right.
2: Well, I'll take a job no matter how it comes to me. Right. Cause I'm a capitalist and I'm ego-based. We already talked about this (laughs) in the last episode. I'm all ego, but I don't, I don't really wanna to be told that it's um, because of a mandate. And I, th- I want to live in my own little world where it's like they that I get hired for my quality and my character and my artistic point of view. So I think it's this person, I'm just presuming that they just don't like being told what to do.
1: Right. But it's an <laughs> right.
2: interesting phrasing of, of the situation, right?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like because like, I had a conversation with another filmmaker friend about this because he's getting ready to do a short film and he wants to bring in, um, you know, more women into the crew and everything. And he was like, "Like, Is it wrong to say that when you're reaching out to a new person that you never worked with before? Or is it better to just, just be like, Oh, I, I really want to work with you because of you? Or is it okay to be a little bit of both? And like, I, I always feel like honesty is the best answer. And when I was looking for, um, a sound recordist a female sound recordist on the alternate like I think I was completely like just like hey like I I really want to work with um a woman sound recordist and I don't know any would you come work on the movie um and I almost got one but then it just didn't work out timing wise and so I had to go with one of my my regulars you know who's amazing too of course but you know but happened to be a man I guess I just think it's like If there is going to be change like you have to go for it no matter what and it doesn't matter if you're doing it because you want to include more people
2: ultimately the net is more opportunities and more money for diverse crafts crafts people right so like if you look at the bottom line as long as i mean so i i won't give away this workplace but i worked at a workplace at one point where i was mandated that the next intern that i hired had to be a person of color and I didn't like that, not because I didn't like being told what to do, but that we paid so very little in internships that I was like, oh, you want me to exploit the labor of a person of color? Like <laughs> Why
1: don't you just, just hire somebody? Yeah, that just
2: doesn't feel right with me, but thank you so much. But if it's voluntary and if it's an opportunity for that person and they want to do it, right, and it's like... a there's value there, I mean. Point being, like, I'll take the job whether someone tells me it's because I'm a woman or because they they want me. I'd ra- I do go back to say though, I'd rather they not tell me it was part of a program.
1: Right. Well, we talked about this with Emily a little bit too. Um, you know, it's the Emily Haggins.
2: Haggins. Haggins.
1: I thought I did it right that time. Haggins. <laughs> Emily Haggins. Oh my God. And you know, she was talking about how for one project that she was on, like they. They, they were open with her that like, yes, they want to include more women into this this project, but it's also because they like her work specifically. Yeah.
2: As long as you can refer to like a project and like reasons why, right? It's not right. just like, I like you. It's, it's so complicated. And it's like a minefield to talk about these kind of things. So I always get super nervous about it. And it's actually not to, I, I like talking about this, but it's a good segue to the short because like, showing and depicting the like squishiness of discrimination is what like this short is all about is like what is what is the gray line between properly treating your talent on set and um, taking advantage of them
1: right and it's like it was like a very passive way of taking advantage and forcing someone to do something that they don't want to do But anyways, I think we should just let Courtney uh, Theron talk about her film Rehearsal. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say about it. And then I really can't wait to talk to you about it afterwards, because as a filmmaker, this obviously hit close to home, but it was so good and so well done and just like really fascinating.
0: Hi, I'm Courtney Hope Theron, the writer, director, producer of the short film Rehearsal. I was inspired to make the film because I worked as first AD on a film where there was a sex scene that was handled sort of strangely. And it was different from what happens in rehearsal but similar in that there was sort of this gray boundary that was crossed and not one specific incident that was easy to point to and talk about. So in struggling to have a conversation about my own feelings around the event afterwards, I decided to make a film to have something sort of concrete to say this was my experience. This was how I felt. How do we have conversations differently about consent to move that conversation forward? So a short film made the most sense for that story because it encapsulated a single moment, and being short, it's easy to sort of watch and, and have a conversation afterwards versus having to watch an entire feature or a series or an, an episode. The film was funded primarily on friendship and love. I had a very tiny crew of four people who were all volunteering. Um, My production designer helped me take apart all the furniture in my apartment and recreate a studio permit in my living room because we couldn't afford to rent a location. So there was a lot of sort of rolling up our sleeves and making it happen. Um, I made lunch for everyone the night before. And then anything that did require cash, um, it was myself and my two producers who funded the film. So very independent. And I remember when we played Encounters Film Festival in the UK, I mentioned that at one of the filmmaking events that my film cost $2,000 to make. And the Europeans were completely in shock, and I had to explain that we don't have art funding in America. So, you know, they had all received. 20 to sixty euro budgets to make their short films from the government and um it was a culture shock for them and i <laughs> just sort of explained how indie filmmaking works and short films in the u.s and then we did get distribution for the film but it ended up costing us money we wanted the opportunity to expand the audience so it made sense to um option the t or license the tv rights but we then that triggered paying the sag actors and because the film's only eight minutes and for short films it pays per minute it didn't end up covering that cost short films are rough <laughs> but fortunately I had an awesome crew and amazing actors and everyone was just excited to be part of the project so we were able to like roll up our sleeves and and make it happen but um if you have the opportunity to make films elsewhere where they fund them highly recommend taking advantage of that before making the film i did want to use it as a tool to start important conversations around consent particularly on set and i'm grateful that that has happened and i was able to sort of spark those conversations and i know the film has been used in a few Um, film programs to talk to directing students about how to work with actors with sensitive material, and that's amazing. Career-wise, short films are tricky because it's a great sample, but it doesn't necessarily lead to more work as a director. So I suppose it would have been nice had I done more of that. Um, But in the sort of step stool (laughs) to... um career directing having shorts that have played festivals and have received recognition and press and so forth those help to make a feature which leads to other things so it's really a process and i think making rehearsal made me see more of how that process works so now that the film's out in the world it serves as both um, material to talk about consent which is amazing and as a sample piece for myself as my voice as a director. I don't know if I were to remake the film, or now that I've sat with it, that I would have done anything necessarily different story-wise. I wish I'd had more time and more money to make the film, um, to make some adjustments, and maybe shoot not in my own apartment. Don't recommend that, but the story, um, I feel pretty good about, which is sort of crazy to say about filmmaking, it's um, always such a gamble. Um, but I'm proud of rehearsal and what it's done now that it's been out in the world. Would never say no to more films though.
1: <laughs> All right, Liz, what did you think of rehearsal?
2: I loved it so much. There's like a point of view and it's gorgeous and every actor in it is really interesting to watch but I think it's it reminded me of the spaghetti short that we watched a little while ago silence is not consent and just the idea of you know at every step of the way someone said are you okay we could do this other ways you know you don't have to be topless we don't have to do this love scene we don't whatever it is I would love to see other people watch this film and get their reaction. Cause I'm sure there's a reaction where someone was like, well, what's the point of this short? You're just watching a day on set, who cares? <laughs> but people like us watch this and are so severely disturbed and affected by it because like, she's the only woman on set. She's alone with three men. She's in compromised positions. Anyway, I just never saw some a short film handle this so delicately and so well tonally. I was incredibly impressed, and that last shot was wonderful. You know, you're just like, oh, this is a director. This is a short film. This is like a real voice. Um, I kept waiting for something else, thinking um, there was going to be something else that happens, and I was so glad that nothing else happens. That it was just the subtlety of um, exploitation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, really beautifully done. You know, it was well made. Um, the shot selection was really smart. The filmmaking itself was really smart, and so
2: great.
3: the little
1: breaks that they had in between the scenes, I thought was really simple, but like also super impactful. And at first, I was like, "Wait, did I miss something?" And then I watched again, and I was like, "Oh wait, no, this is just a chapter break." It was it was really great, and I love the ending too. I thought it was really good, and. um, I don't know. I guess I don't really know how you couldn't feel the 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 wrongness of what was happening in that scene because of the point of view that that the film takes. It's like you're with um you know the lead actor the whole time with the woman and so you feel every little bit. And it's like as soon as like they ask something, it's like my I like I cringe a little bit like oh god, you shouldn't have asked that that way. Oh god. And all the all the sub subtext of like oh, they didn't talk about this. There was no clarity. They never said this was gonna be a nude scene. They never said, oh, in this rehearsal, we want you to get nude. They never, there was no communication whatsoever. You could tell without them having to show it or say it, you just, you can see it, right? And it's like, they basically break every rule that you're, that you're supposed to follow or that you should, it just as a decent human follow when you're doing something like this it's like the arrogance that the filmmakers have of like how important their movie is. And that like, oh, of course she'll get naked in this rehearsal. And like the other actor even like kind of buying into that and playing into that and talking about how brilliant the director is or how brilliant the cinematographer is. It's like all this pressure that's being shoved onto her in this really passive way. I mean, to do that in a film is so incredibly difficult. And I think the way that that Courtney was able to convey all this all within subtext, right? It's like all underneath. It's like really, really skillful filmmaking. So it, it was, it was crazy.
2: I want to double down on that comment where I really think you could show this to a lot of people and they would say, Well, those, the director, or the DP, or whoever, I mean, they didn't even define this technical right. members, but I assume as director and DP asked her over and over again, Is she okay? And she said yes. So I like guarantee there are people who would come on the side of it being a totally safe environment for her and that's what's so heartbreaking about it
1: so there's no empathy from them at all right and and no awareness and it's it's like it's like arrogance and ignorance combined they're not paying attention to her they only care about themselves and the and the film so they're not worrying about her needs or wants or or anything and then they're they're just not thinking about like i don't really feel like the characters are malicious in any way i don't think that they're doing it as some sort of mind game to force her to do something that she doesn't want to do i don't think that's what's happening
2: no they think they're good guys that's the worst of it
1: yeah they think they're great they think that they're doing everything right and they're following the rules and that she was cool and that no one got hurt and they they don't really have any idea that anything was wrong only we know and then of course she knows right because she's going through it but I don't know if I ever talked about this with you um, when you were on the podcast, but I did a movie um, called *The Rage* that has an, a naked sex scene um, that was, you know, supposed to be 100% nude. And then, um, due to some miscommunications, <laughs> it didn't happen that way. But it was it was caught early enough where we didn't ever do anything that was like in the realm of what is happening in this movie. It was all communicated clearly beforehand. But like, even when you're communicating clearly, it's still difficult and challenging and hard, you know? Um, But I I feel like my actors were very comfortable and very happy with everything, the way it went and the way that we communicated with them. But yeah, it's such a a difficult, touchy situation. Oh
2: my God. And you made me watch this and then watch Debbie Bradshaw's Hot Cake, which we're gonna talk about (laughs) the next episode. Back to back. I mean, you didn't like sit me down in Clockwork Orange. but I'm just (laughs) saying like the two films that you picked, I literally my day after I watch these two films, I go in the living room and I go to Sean and I go, I'm really sad right now. But that's the mark of these good films, Right. right? Is that you feel emotionally affected. And I think also because I never watch anything dark anymore because of the pandemic. So like, I don't really believe in trigger warnings, but I guess watch this film when you're ready to feel a little down but it's well worth the downness that you feel
1: and filmmakers if you're gonna do a sex scene or you're gonna do anything with nudity it doesn't even have to have nudity it can just be a sex scene like communicate with your actors extremely clearly because I always think about actors like the thing that they do, uh, you know, in movies and when we're working with actors, it's like the most vulnerable thing you could possibly do to just be an actor just doing a regular scene and like taking your own emotions and putting them onto a fictional character and like putting yourself out there in that way. It's like, it's so vulnerable. So imagine like trying to also ask them to be naked or to be physical with somebody that they don't know Like even just being physical with somebody they don't don't know, forget the nudity. Like that's another extremely vulnerable thing. And then it's like, you know, you basically in that, in the short, they go from like zero to like 200, (laughs) you know, with like vulnerability. And it's like, and they have no clue what they're asking of her or what they're doing. And it's like, oh, it's so painful to watch, but so good. So I hope everyone likes this movie as much as we did. And Courtney, congratulations. Oh my goodness. Fantastic work.
2: I guess with that, even though I don't want to, I could talk about this forever. We should move on to our conversation with Amber.
1: Amber will brighten your day after watching this short film because Amber is full of positivity and energy. So yes. So we're here with Amber Seely, director, writer extraordinaire. And I'm gonna ask the first question about her new film, No Man of God. So how many days did you shoot No Man of God?
2: We shot for 16 days. Amazing. Uh, what was the rough budget or what are you allowed to say about the budget? You know, I mean, it was union
3: and it was a low budget union. I'll say that.
1: And then how long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to its release?
3: So I think I got the job in like January or February of this year and we were in prep in March and then we were about to start shooting in April and then the pandemic hit and we got shut down. So then throughout the summer we were very like, ah, when is this gonna happen? And then when all the unions started coming out with their Safer Way Forward papers and all that, then we were able to restart and we shot in um, September. Can you talk about the size of your crew? Yeah, I think we were all told like 50 people.
1: And then compared to all your other projects uh, you made, how difficult was this one?
3: Well, God, you know, I'll tell you, during the shooting of of No Man of God, we were dealing with the pandemic, 120 degree weather in Pomona. That was the week of the earthquake. Uh, there were wildfires oh, and actual great. like a beyond hazardous, like the most level of hazardous smoke in the air that you can get. And my house happened to be like completely infested with ants. And I was waking up in the middle of the night with ants crawling all over me. So like (laughs) just those things alone made it like the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. But then just like if I were to take all of those things away, um, you know, cut out half of my brain, the rest of it was just normal. You know, like there's always hard things and, and there's always wonderful things. And you just sort of roll with all those things.
2: I remember seeing a picture of you and I think it was, I mean, you had the the face mask, but then you had a face shield and then I thought you had some sort of like oxygen mask in addition. <laughs> it was like, there was like three layers of protection. Maybe I imagined that third one, but it looks like there was a lot of safety protocols that you had to follow because you were in the midst of obviously um, of what we're still in the midst of. Did it impact the way you directed, do you think? Oh, completely. I mean, I, I don't think
3: I ever wore all of those things at the same time, but I definitely, like the first week I was really experimenting with my own PPE, like what was going to work best for me. It really ended up being a lot on my head and on my face, right? There's just a lot that you're wearing. And that was also a challenge. In the beginning, like the, that first week was the week of the crazy smoke. So I was playing around with these like HEPA filter things because, you know, originally our plan for everybody's safety had been. For the COVID safety of it all, was everyone should be outside as much as possible. Um, you know, right. <laughs> all of our staging areas of equipment and blah 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 blah, and people's break areas, all of it was outside. So we're getting like you know fresh air. Then the smoke hits, and so then it was like this big conundrum of like, and we actually for a couple days we didn't even know if we could film because it wasn't safe to be outside, but because of the union rules, we had to allow people to eat outside, you know, cause whenever someone was gonna take off their mask, they couldn't be around anybody else. Um you know if depending on what zone they were in right so for a few days we didn't know if we were going to be able to film and then we just came upon the we were like i guess everyone just eats in their own car separately cuz at least then they can take off <laughs> their masks safely so we did that for the first week when when it wasn't really safe to be outside but yeah in terms of the ppe i mean it's the same as it is just going to the grocery store you know you're you have to stay far from people and you are not seeing their facial expressions we also had a thing where we were very concerned with the air in the room and recirculating that air. Our, our science told us that the way we can keep everybody the safest is if we are constantly recirculating fresh air in. And you know, we had people that are smarter than I am doing math figures based on the size of the room and the air capacity and how many people were in the room and therefore how often we would have to shut everything down and completely reventilate the room. And I really do think that that was the, why we were able to get through the whole production without having any positive COVID tests was because of all that air circulation. Um, but basically how this relates to the PPE is that sometimes it was actually better for me to not be in the room. Like if we had, if we wanted any background and if we had both cameras going at the same time and both dolly grips working at the same time it would sometimes mean that we'd hit our capacity of number of people that can be in the room. And so it was easier for me to just stay out. And so we landed on this way of communicating with me not being on set all the time, and um, it was certainly something to get used to. And different people adapted to it differently, but in the end, it worked. Like it, I just became kind of like this voice of God over the walkie, and it wasn't as much privacy as I normally have with my actors. Certainly, I mean, I'm usually very intimate with them and up close and whispering in their ear and touching them, and you know, I'm usually a very huggy, touchy person. And same thing with my DP, like we're usually just like breathing on each other's faces the whole time. But again, because of COVID, we couldn't do that. So we had to just embrace the like, all right, everyone's just gonna know everyone else's shit. Um, so I was <laughs> giving notes to actors over the walkie sometimes. I'd be in my car outside the building, watching on the monitors, giving them notes and everybody just hearing them. And that was certainly different from for me because before that I was always very into like secret whispered notes to my actors.
0: Did
1: you ever feel like you had the opportunity to pull an actor out of that space in order to have a conversation? Or do you felt the the need to do that? Or were you just, did you just rely on the the voice of God sort of thing to, for your communication?
3: Oh, sometimes, I mean, you know, we would check in, the actors and I would check in with each other, you know, whenever we needed to. And we actually got burner phones for the actors too, so that we could just have private conversations if we needed to, when I couldn't get on set. And we didn't end up using those very often. We did it the first few days, and then we were sort of like, we don't really need this. So we would see each other. we they would come out and see me or I would go in and see them or whatever. You know, so we could definitely check in whenever we needed to. But ultimately, it became kind of unnecessary. Like we all just got used. The actors were incredibly flexible and just so lovely and really like just adapt at embracing different things. And so they just embraced the walkie and, they would joke around and laugh because like you know I would like interrupt a take and they could hear me coming because I you know you press you press the button and there's the little like crackle that happens before my voice and they would all go ah here she comes (laughs) you know but we just got used to it and then yeah we didn't really need it as much sometimes I would text them or they would text me but you know it was a really intimate group and I think it just, I don't know, we found our groove and we found that we didn't really need as much privacy as we had thought that maybe we needed. I mean, this isn't a movie, like it doesn't have sex scenes in it. Um, So, you know, that might be different if it had that, but we just worked it out.
2: Well, let's take like 500 feet steps back or let's journey back in time. How did the project come to you and how did you get involved in the first place? You know, I love this story because it's like the way that it's supposed to happen. You know, I think a lot of
3: like actors and directors and writers they you know, we always feel like we have to generate our own work. And this one miraculously happened exactly as it's supposed to happen. My manager just knew the production company. It's SpectraVision, Elijah Woods production company. And she was friends with Daniel Noah, one of the producers there. And I don't know if he reached out to her or she knew of the project, but anyway, she you know, brought me up to them. They were interested. They said, you know, have Amber come in. And so I came in and I did a pitch. I just prepared like a quick visual thing. And I, and I did a pitch and I think they told me I got the job like the next day. It was all very quick because they had these life rights to the person who the movie's about as a real life man named Bill Hagmeier. And they had the life rights to him and the, I think they, you know, just because of the term of the life rights they had to film within this calendar year, and um, so they were eager to to move quickly and so yeah it just happened like it, my manager sent it to me, sent me the script, are you interested, I said yeah I'll go meet them, and I had a very particular, you know, feeling about the movie because it's mostly about Bill Hagmeyer but also about Ted Bundy, and it that's not like a natural fit for me if you know anything about my work or you know my previous films like you wouldn't think oh amber Seely, ted bundy yeah that like so i came in with a very specific like hey look this is my take on it you don't like it totally get it but you i said to them though i said but you definitely have to hire a woman like in this in this climate you can't make a movie about ted bundy that's a lot of the movie is two men sitting in a room talking about raping and murdering women you just can't do that and not have the director because the writer is a man as well It was like you have to have a female director and to their credit they like already were on board with that and they were like oh yeah no we already know that and we we want to do that and so yeah
2: so the job just came to me the way jobs are supposed to come to you which is through your reps has that happened before I know it I like to think that it happens all the time to you but I I've just never seen that so I just what does it happen to you a lot No, that was, uh, was that the first time? Let me
3: think. That was the first time that it happened to me and the movie actually got made very quickly. I've been attached to other things that have not yet happened through my reps. And I'm attached to another thing now that I just got attached to this summer that was also through my reps that will happen next year. But that was the first time that it happened and actually got made. Yeah.
1: Can you talk about your process? Like when you get that script, you read it and you have your meeting the next day or whatever it is, like what do you prepare and how do you get ready for your pitch to go into the room and and win the job?
3: You know, it really depends on like if the the project is financed or not and like what level they're at with development Um, and if it's a job that like I really want or not. So if it's a job that Is financed and kind of ready to go, and has like really what I consider to be like interesting people that are serious about it and serious about making it. Then I will prepare a whole pitch and I'll make like a visual, you know, whatever you want to call it, deck or lookbook. I mean, I guess you call it a pitch, but I'll make like a, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 page document that has some text and some photos that is really like just embodying how I see it. It just helps me talk through it, you know. So I'm a little bit all over the place as you can see when I talk, I kind of, and when, before when I would do it in the room, I'd have the like screen next to me. Now you do it over Zoom. And so this one was in the room and I just opened up my, it was it was really casual. So I just opened my laptop and kind of, you know talked them through my, my vision for the film. And then the one I did this summer for the other uh, film we just did it, I did it over Zoom and I, I had, I actually emailed them the PDF so they could look at it in their own time as well. But I, I didn't email it to them until after we had the Zoom pitch. And on the Zoom pitch, I just, you know, I just shared my screen and I just talked them through each page. But it depends, you know, I found that, you know, a lot of people send you scripts and, and they want you to like pitch your, your vision on it, but they don't realize like how much work that takes to do, you know, like when I read a script, I'm taking notes on it so, my read will take like four hours, really, because I'm like starting to take notes and jot down thoughts and ideas and starting to reference images or, or, or visual, visuals. And so that is a four hour chunk of time. And then there's the making the pitch thing, you know, which will be anywhere from like two to two days to a week, you know, to like really fine tune it and put the text in that I want and find the visuals. And I find that a lot of people, like, you know, a writer or a producer, they'll like send me a script and then they'll expect me to do this huge pitch back to them. And I'm just like, look like, I'll do that down the road, you know, but like, if you don't have any financing and you're not, it's not in, and you want me to come on and essentially help you produce it with you, then you can't expect me to, uh, this is just my thing. And I think other directors maybe are different, you know, maybe I'm being a little too precious about my time or something. But for me, as like an adult with two kids in a, in a busy life, like I really only do those intense pitches if it's a job that I feel like is really going to go.
2: Are you being approached as a producer as well? Or are you just saying that you would manifest the project and make it happen with your attachment?
3: I'm not being approached as a producer. No, it's more like they people want to attach a director knowing that like you know, most directors, at least like you and I, Liz, right? Like we've had to produce all of our own stuff, even if we didn't get a producer credit. Like I am a producer as well. I don't want to be a producer and I'm not trying to be, but I know how to, and I know how to attach people and I know how to go and look for financing and all that stuff. So I think sometimes people, whether consciously or not, they want to attach a director because it brings momentum, but it also brings all the other people that that director has ever worked with and their wealth of knowledge and So sometimes I think you just end up being a producer because the project isn't yet at that stage of development. So that's why I guess I'm saying for me right now, career-wise, I prefer to attach myself when producers are already on board and producers who already know how to get the momentum going and to get financing. And then I slot in when it really is the appropriate point for me to start talking about my vision rather than showing them my vision prior to any of the actual early stage development stuff that in my mind, I think kind of like should be done before I come on.
1: Right, yeah, so if it's like a job that they're gonna actually hire you and it's already ready to go, like no man of God sounded like it was, then it's like you come in with your full creative, you're like, I want this job, like you come in with all your pizzazz, but if it's something where they're like, oh, this script, we wanna attach you, we don't have financing, then it's like you feel okay waiting and just taking your time with it.
3: Yeah, that and just like, I want, I guess I just want people to understand that, you know, that it's a lot to ask of a director to really hardcore pitch themselves for a project that doesn't have any momentum behind it yet. You know, when we're asked to do this multiple times, you know, I mean, I have like six scripts right now that are all projects I'm really interested in working on that I have to read that are all essentially hoping, I think that I'll do a big pitch because that gets them excited about it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand why they want it. I totally do. I just have to be really picky about the ones that I'm gonna spend a lot of time doing those pitches on. And so for me, just time and effort wise, it makes more sense to do the ones that either I'm totally, I mean, look, I could say all this and then throw it all away and be like, oh my God, if someone sends me a script that I'm like, this is literally about my life, I'm so passionate about this, Uh," you know? And the other thing is, is that it's also because, because I am a writer director and because I do have my own stuff that I wrote that I wanna make as well, that's the stuff that I'll do anything for, you know, and that I am doing anything for. So I guess this is all just like the really long way of saying that for me personally to attach myself to something, I want it to be a little bit more advanced in its, in its development stages before I come on.
2: You've earned that Amber. I mean, like my next question is about all of the achievements you've had. And by the way, I have a question in here. I'm not going to ask it, but I'll just reference it. Did you know that you have my dream career? Going back to the question that I was alluding to. I look it, at you and think you have my dream career. So I don't know what you're talking that's so about. that's sure. <laughs> a bold faced lie. but I no, everyone, it. Looks at,
3: everyone looks at everyone else and goes like, wow, how did they do that? Like, I think we all just look at each other like that, you know, like no one ever feels like what they have is Good enough or whatever, you know, but I, I some I think it's like a problem particularly for women, but anyway, we can get into that later.
2: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. But I I do think you've truly earned that ability to kind of pick and choose and come on and approach these processes in the ways that work for you. And, um, you know, you've done Director's Workshop for Women, you've played Sundance, you've been a part of Film Independent and LAFF and all of these amazing fellowships. I think I stopped like writing all of the fellowships and shadowing programs you've been a part of because I was just like, I'm tired. I don't want to write them anymore. (laughs) can you talk a little bit about the way those programs have helped you or have not helped you or the reason you you participated in them? Yeah. I mean, they're
3: all different. You know, I came to filmmaking in a sort of backwards way, I guess. Like I, you know, I made my first feature not with any real understanding of like trying, you know, what a filmmaker was or trying to be a filmmaker or, and I was also living in London at the time. And you know, I I was working in underground weird theater and I knew nothing about how the film industry worked in America. It came it came about really organically for me. Like I was really like, oh, this is sort of interesting. I feel like I have this thing to say, like, sure, let's just get some friends and quickly, you know, and like throw it all together. And then I enjoyed it. So I was like, oh, all right, let's do the next one. And that's kind of how everything went until at a certain point. I, I don't know when I was sort of five years in, then I was like, oh, wow, no, this is really like what I'm supposed to do. Like all the pieces of me kind of came together because before this, I was an actor, but I always was like a very mouthy actor, you know? And I always had this idea of like how things should go. And, you know, and I also was always writing. And so it didn't really occur to me that like, oh, if I call myself a filmmaker, I can do all of these things, you know? And then I started to understand like the way things are supposed to be done here. Like, I didn't really know like, oh, you're supposed to, do the Sundance labs first you know like I didn't learn that until it was too late I'd already done a couple of features and then I wasn't eligible for them anymore and so I often look back and I'm like shit I wish I'd known that that's how I was supposed to do it so anyway you asked about the labs and I just really looked at the other women who I thought had successful careers and were making it happen and and trying to copy what they did And I also felt like, you know, because I wasn't eligible for, say, like the Sundance Labs and stuff. And that's a whole other thing I want to talk about. Well, I just want to say, I think our country has this obsession with like the young first-time filmmaker that to me is Age and emerging, they're not the same thing. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what's wrong with the sort of, the filmmaker that like slowly over time, you know, comes out of the gate? Why does it have to be like, and it's because we love that story of the 23-year-old who, oh my God, they're so amazing. And I'm just like, aren't we tired of that story? I mean, I was so excited about the 40-year-old version because I was like, great, you know. And I don't know that woman well enough to know her past. Maybe she's been clogging, you know, slogging away at this for 20 years, and you know, it, it wasn't an out-of-the-gate story. But um, anyway, regardless, the labs—they all helped in in a different way. And I do think that it is like a cumulative thing that that it get there gets to be a point where people look at your bio and they're like, oh, she did all these labs, great, she must be approved. It's really a series of like approvals, you know, to know that Film Independent approves of me, check. Sundance approves of me, check. The Half Foundation approves of me, check. You know, that's just kind of like the way our business works, right? Is that we want everyone else to sort of say yes, to know that it's safe for us to say yes. It's not that I don't learn things in them, I totally learn things in them, but I think that they're most valuable as like a notch on your belt.
1: Here's an odd question so you made your first feature but you hadn't done the labs yet I guess the question is like did you try to get another movie made before you did the labs or did you just kind of realize oh I I in order to get the kind of movies I want made made I have to go do the through do, do this process and do these programs
3: oh no I mean I, I wish it was more like thought through like that it's all just been random you know it's all just been like oh there's a deadline for this lab should I apply okay you know like I mean, most of them, 90% of them, I like missed the deadline. I'm like, oh, fuck, I wanted to apply to that. Oh, well, you know, so I think it was really just more random. And it was more just like when I learned about them, you know, like when I learned about the film and Defended directing lab, I was like, oh, oh, okay, I want to do that. So then I applied and then I did it. You know, a lot of it is like word of mouth from other directors. We all talk to each other about what labs are good. And I'm much too lazy to have any sort of orchestrated plan.
1: (laughs) Right, right, right.
2: Can we talk a little bit about being an actor and talking to other actors? Because I think at least for me, and I don't know if Ulrich feels this way or Ulrich's also a feature filmmaker and an amazing storyteller, there's this desire to say something that turns the light on for an actor, and then there's a fear of like saying something that will close the door. And, um, I assume I'm going to presume that because you have all these experiences performing that you don't have those same neuroses or anxieties, but I'd be curious if you could talk about how you talk to actors.
3: Yeah. I mean, I love actors and I think a lot of that comes from me being an actor. I still think of myself as an actor, even though I don't pursue it professionally anymore. I it's, it was my first love. And in some ways I think it's like still the thing I do best. I just understand acting. Like I've been doing it since I was five, you know, and I've, I've done theater, I've done film, I've done modern dance, like I've done, you know, TV. So I feel like I really know the world and I really know what it is like to sit on the other side of the lens and to like see the director and see all the crew, like watching you. And, and I know those anxieties and those thoughts and those fears. And so I'm so like, just sympathetic to it. And I just I just love actors. It's a really amazing thing that, that they do and it's really vulnerable. And, and I think people often don't know how scary it is to do it. And I think people focus on like the accolades or the money they get or the fame they get and, and they forget the challenges and how like emotional and intimate and raw it really can be, you know? I know a lot of directors have that fear of like saying the wrong thing. I don't know why. Maybe it's stupidity. I don't have that fear. <laughs> I also just have to say that, like, it's like the thing I'm really confident about. Like, I know that given the amount, given the right amount of time, I could get an amazing performance out of anybody, like, hands down, non actor, actor, like anybody. I just have to be given the amount of time, you know, to always do that, which you don't always have on set, right? You don't always have that time. So, you know, to me, like, them clamming up or getting mad at me is not something that I'm scared of. Um, And it's something that I know I can work through with them. And some of that maybe comes from like who I am as a person and like not just my acting career, but like the family I grew up in, like I grew up, you know, with a yelling Jewish mom. I love you, mom. Um, So conflict was not scary to me. And so reaching out to someone and being like, hey, why did you do that? Wasn't scary to me. You know, going through that challenging time and getting to the resolution at the end isn't scary for me. So if I see an actor like resisting or pulling back, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go, oh, okay, they need some space. And you know, I mean, sometimes space is certainly the answer. And so I will do that if I think that's the answer. But if it's more that it's just that they're, you know, closing the door in a way that is not actually helping either one of us or helping the scene, then I will go in and I'll ask and I'll dig. That's part of my job, right? Is to you're part therapist as a director, you know, you're a therapist to the character and the actor. So I just sort of see it. I just see it as part of my job. And I, and I love it. I love that intimate work. And that was, that is a thing that, that was different, you know, with COVID, it was harder. We had to find other ways to find those, those moments together because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't just like be three inches from each other and, you know, or or even just do a little smile and a nod, you know, because we were all behind these masks and shields and
1: So like, it sounds like you're very direct with your actors, like is that kind of your preference of of approaching them or do you do this thing where you like try to like say a word or a certain like type of approach that'll get them to the place you want them to get or is it for you just always the direct and open approach when communicating with them?
3: I mean, I'm a pretty direct and open person and I'm pretty like talky as you can see, like I, you know I I think my probably, I, I probably talk too much But it depends on the time. I mean, there's certainly been times where, like, I was like, we have four minutes before the sun sets and we have to get this. And there have been times where I've just, like, barked at the actors, happier. Okay, now do it sadder. Okay, you know, like, (laughs) that's like just, you know, (laughs) not good directing at all. But sometimes you have to do that. But I'm definitely, like, there's an athleticism to the emotional connection that I have, I think, that I work on having with the actors. I do often go for, like, a, Uh, surprise them, you know, particularly like, I think one of the number one things that all actors are guilty of is they get into a rut of like delivering the line the same way, you know, or not being able to just try it a different way. And I am a big fan of having options in the edit so even if I know like, oh, in this scene, she should be crying. Like I'm also going to get a, get one where she's like totally laughing hysterically and not crying just because I want that option because I may assume that it's crying.
2: And then in the edit, I might be like, oh my God, she shouldn't be crying at all. Like, it, you know. Do you say to them, like, give me another option in the edit? Like, can you say that to an actor? Oh, I do. Okay. I do. That's great. Yeah. I want to say things like that.
3: I always do like, a, well, I'll be like, all right, throw out everything I just said. Give me a wild card. Do anything. You know, like I'll. And I give them weird things to do. I mean, I you know, in the, in No Man of God, like I, I don't think I can announce the actor yet, but I was like, you're flossing your teeth in this scene, and like we hadn't talked about that at all, you know. And of course, props were like floss, and the COVID people are like, can we do that? <laughs> you know, you just gotta throw things at them sometimes, and um, and and you know, to their credit, I mean, I think all of them would they get excited by that? You know, it's very few actors that are like, wait, what? We didn't talk about this we didn't plan it you know actors like challenges and they like fun and games and you know one of the things that most actors like is like the part of acting class where we're all playing games you know like that's a big part of why we like to do it so
1: well I mean everyone has different approaches right and different ways that they like to communicate with their actors and and I you know I'm learning I only made one movie you know so like I like the direct approach like I just think that's better and I had no time on my movie so it's like there wasn't really time to get into long, lengthy conversations on set, so we had them all before. But you know, I've talked to other directors that are like more like they're like more mysterious and more like you know, it's like this
2: analogies, right? Speaking
3: yeah, analogies. weird
1: stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't do that. I I can't do that.
3: I mean, I, that's not, not to say that I think my way is like the only way at all. I mean, yeah, there I'm sure there are millions of directors that are amazing that do like you know, like give their actor a poem and ask them to you know, like I'm. Um, I think what's most important is that you be true to you and that you find the way that works for you, rather than trying to emulate somebody else or something else that you've seen. You know, like the way the way I described is very much in hand with what my personality is. You know, like I'm like that as a human. You know, so it just works for me as you know as my approach. And like I said before, you know, my my persona as a director is very much informed by you know me as a as an actor, me as a dancer, me as a person, you know it all kind of comes together and congeals. So you have to do you for sure totally.
2: Does it feel like you're on a fast moving train because from my vantage point I won't speak for arc but it it seems like you're on a fast moving train right now. <laughs> uh, talk about analogies. I'm just saying it seems like your career is taking off if it, and I'm not saying all of a sudden but that you're really on a you're exploding and I don't know if if you're feeling that or if it or if I'm wrong tell me I'm wrong go on I'm like can
3: you can I'm just like can I record you saying that to like you know so at night when I'm like having anxiety I can just play that to myself to go to sleep like Liz thinks I'm doing okay (laughs) (laughs) just because of the pandemic like I don't think anything feels like a fast-moving train right now like everything feels like groundhog day right now you know I, I think there was a thing of like the DWW or getting new reps the DWW Sundance, you know, those, those things I think propelled me. And yet, like having been trying for so many years and wanting this for so many years, it feels 10 years late, you know, (laughs) for me, you know, and I think that going back to what we talked about before about, you know, I think particularly for women, we're really, you know, the scarcity theory, you know, we're really taught that like oh there's only a slot for one woman and so you know there's very little slice of the pie for you and that's a hard thing to shake off you know like I I constantly look around and see these other people I'm like god they're doing so much better than me but who's to say if like I just wasn't ready or my stuff just wasn't good enough or or there really was some injustice to it and I should have gotten it also you know I think the hard thing for me about this business is that it is always so subjective, you know, like there are so many people that I think are deserving of success and don't get it. And so many people that are not deserving of it in my mind and get it. This is just an opinion-based industry. It's an opinion-based industry. You know, like I don't think XYZ movie is worthy of an Oscar, but it gets one. People have different opinions from what I have and you have to just sort of accept
2: that. We interviewed um, Felicia Pride, and she said anytime she doesn't get an opportunity, she says it's a, like a sign or proof that something better. She's meant for something better than that thing, that that thing was going to like tie her up or distract her from the better thing that's around the corner. And I love I love, I don't believe that for me at all, but I love hearing someone who believes that. (laughs) Oh no,
3: I mean, I think that sounds so great. I, yeah, I'm more like, oh, I must be a piece of shit. (laughs) And I sit with, if I didn't get something, but luckily I also have like a bad memory. So then I forget, and then I apply to the next thing. And I, you know, like it's, you gotta have a little bit of amnesia, I think (laughs) to survive this industry. It's like, what do they say about childbirth? You know, like you forget about how awful it was. So then you do it again.
1: Here's a question for you, which maybe is hard to answer, but like, you know, you talk talk about other people getting opportunities or other things going a different way than, than your way. Do you feel like in those instances that it's often people with more connections than you or more of a personal in into that project or that opportunity? Or do you think it's just like different every time and that has nothing to do with it?
3: For sure, people who have wealth and people who grew up with parents in the industry, like they just have a huge advantage. Like that's just 100%. Um, If you are the type of personality that is good at socializing and good at networking, then yes, things will also be easier for you. I was just talking with another female filmmaker yesterday on the phone and I was like, yeah, I guess I have these amazing generals. And then I just like, I don't reach out again. Like I don't keep in contact with them because it's just not in my nature. You know, I'm not, I'm not gonna be like, hey, we haven't talked for a few months, how have you been? Like I find that thing like so painful and cheesy. And But I know that that's like a very real way that, that a lot of people get work, you know is by maintaining contacts. Outside of that, I think there are kind of personality traits that tend to do better. I think it's people who are able to just really like talk about their work like it's, it's just like they're a genius, you know? And I think what happens is a lot of people then go, oh, they must be, they're a genius. Okay. And then, and then people start to believe it. And I've always struggled with that because. Not only I, I I like seeing people's flaws and I like talking about my own flaws. You know, it's very few things I think that come out each year that I personally would say are perfect. So, therefore, I apply that same lens to my work. Like I look at my work and I'm like, it's not perfect. I think I've always been very worried as a person of being perceived as like conceited, and so I I would always come forward talking about the mistakes that I made or the errors or the flaws in something. And it took me a while to notice that the people that I perceived as becoming more successful more quickly than I was, those people weren't talking about their flaws. They were talking about their stuff like they were geniuses and their stuff was amazing. For a while I was like, oh, do I, do I have to do that? And, and then I just really settled into like, no, like be the, be the change you want to see in the world. You know, like I, I, I think I can make it still being really honest about the flaws that I have as an artist.
1: Right. Yeah, it's really interesting, like the whole uh, party atmosphere, because it's not conducive to talking, which totally sucks, because if it was conducive to talking, I think I'd like it a lot more, because I'm like you, I like to talk a lot, obviously, but I don't like when the a part- third co-host, <laughs> guest co-host, you got it, but yeah, it, uh, it it's just like you can't really talk, you can't have a conversation, like, because it's so loud. So I just I'm just saying to the party people in the world who are making these networking events, turn the music down so I we totally can actually agree. talk.
3: And you're like having you're going, What are you saying? Yelling, what yeah, movie did I you totally work on? Agree. I I don't know.
1: <laughs> and I find it excruciating too, of
3: like the just sometimes when you're trapped talking to someone you, you don't want to talk to, and then someone else leaving you when you want to talk to them is like so painful. You know, I mean, I just I would much rather this kind of thing where we're forced to talk whether we like each other or not.
2: <laughs> I love what you said about flaws though. Cause I've had other people in the industry, actually a lot of women tell me that I'm too self-deprecating and then I need to own it and act like a boss. And it always really upsets me because it's like, why, why can't more people act more self-deprecating and more humble? Why is the onus on those who enjoy flaws and embrace those? So I just wanted to say, I encourage you to keep up with that flawed attitude as much (laughs) as possible. I think it's really important for this industry of phony behavior um, to have people like that.
3: I think a lot about uh, Joey Soloway um, when they were doing Transparent. And I remember uh, them talking about how these quote unquote, like feminine behaviors that they were embracing those on set, like crying and talking about emotions and you know, and I think that we get told this narrative of like, oh, if you're a woman and you want to be director, you got to essentially act like a man, you know, like be cold, be confident, you know, and I just, to me, I'm like, why can't we both be strong and weak? You know, like those two, we need both of those things. And I think as a person, I also have always been a very seesaw type person, you know, where I'll have like huge, I'm like, Oh my God, I, this is great. I know exactly what we have to do. I'm definitely right. And they're all wrong. And then, and then five minutes later, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm an idiot. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, you know, so to me, it's like, I live in that duality, you know, and, and, and that's very much like where I create from. And yeah, I don't want that to go away, I guess.
1: It's funny. I've even been told that I am too self-deprecating, but even like with simple things, like, like I'll, I'll refer to this podcast as, Oh yeah. Our little podcast. And then people will be like, Oh, little podcasts. Like don't talk about your podcast that way. Your podcast is like one of the top filmmaking podcasts out there, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, it is little. Right. And also
3: it's like, I don't know. I find it endearing to call things little and oh, my little film. And you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I like that.
2: All right, Amber, so what is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now?
3: First film I ever made is called A Plus D and I'm proud of it. It's not for everyone.
2: My family likes to
3: call it my porno. <laughs> so, but I made it as a reaction to Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs, which was a movie that he made, uh, I don't
1: know if you oh, saw it.
2: I saw that in the movie theater. Yeah. And the only other person in the movie theater was a guy in a trench coat. Oh,
1: gosh. <laughs>
2: Nice. <laughs> nice. I mean,
3: I am a big Michael Winterbottom fan, but when that movie came out, again, I was living in London and there was all this press about like, it's like a real, really, you know, it shows real sex and it's a real relationship and it's what relationships are really like. And I was like, oh great. And then I went to see it and while it's a beautiful movie and it's great, it's these two models um, having like sex that looks like a gorgeous music video with like the guy with Penis the size of an elephant's, you know, I mean a horse's cock, excuse me, and uh, and they both orgasm every single time they and I was like, well, that's, I mean, good for them, but that's not any real relationship that I know of. So I made my movie that says again, like a no budget, like just reaction against that of like, you know, hey, this is to me what a real relationship is like, and so it's about a couple from the time they meet to the end of the relationship. So it spans like three years, and again, it's not perfect, but I
1: I feel fondly towards it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
3: I mean, you know, people always say things like, you know, just be you, you know, and that and that's nice, I think. But I don't know if I ever was going to do anything other than that. I mean, I think because I grew up poor um, and not with money, it took a lot of getting used to for me to understand, like how to talk about money and how to comfortably ask for money without feeling like I was asking for it for me personally, but rather for this like idea and concept they could be a part of. You know, I think that one of the things that really moved me the most was there was a Sundance female filmmakers financing intensive, which is basically to teach women how to, you know, talk about money. It was great. And they had Ruth Ann Harnish, who is a very wealthy woman. um, And she, but this is like her job that she lectures on women and, and finance. And she sat, you know, there's like 50 of us or something doing the workshop. And we're all like successful filmmakers. And, And she started to talk to us about money. And she asked questions like, when you were a kid, who was in charge of the money and how did they make you feel? And things like, you know, when you had to ask for money, like, what was that like? You know, and every woman in there was crying. And it was a really powerful, like, oh, interesting, you know, like just to realize how our relationships to finance had really become like sometimes an obstacle to the way we went about finding money for our projects. And so for me, that was a really, it was a really eye opening thing to realize, like I hadn't ever put the pieces together that me growing up without money and having relatives that had a lot of money, how much that had like kind of just affected me in my own relationship with money. Um, so that's probably, I think in a way the most useful
2: thing. I remember talking to a filmmaker and I set a time with him and I was like, tell me how you fundraise. And he's like, Oh, I go to f- I go to like foundation events where there's like a board of trustees there and I go up to every single board member and I ask them for money for my project. And I'm just like, that is so novel. You just ask for money. <laughs> like you just literally just say, I need money for a project. That's yeah. crazy to me, right?
3: But I think if you grew up with those people around you or in that world. You know, or parents that were fundraising or going to yacht clubs or whatever, then it wouldn't seem weird, maybe.
2: Valid. What's your goal, or do you have a specific goal you want to achieve as a filmmaker?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's more that I would like to be making art that I write and direct and that I feel good about and that I feel good about putting out into the world. I think, in particular, because of what's been happening, you know, both with you know, the pandemic, and then just politically and socially in this country, I feel like it's so important now more than ever to like, really make the time that you spend on this earth matter. And whether that ever becomes like popular or famous or not is irrelevant. What matters really is just that you enjoy the process. And that you enjoy like what it is that you're trying to do, whether it's successful or not doesn't really matter. It more matters that you are putting your energy into something that you care about and that you think is good for people or good for the world. And I always had that, but I I feel that even more keenly now, especially as a parent, you know, like, like, oh, if I'm going to take like months and months away from my kids, then it's got to be for something that I really care about. I mean, I think our industry is doing a little bit better at it, but just, you know, trying to find more diverse voices and just, just different kinds of storytellers. I always really applaud When there's a piece of art by a woman or a person of color, like even if it, even if I don't even think it's good, I'm just like, I want that kind of thing to exist in the world. You know, I want varied stories and varied voices. um, And whether or not their particular art speaks to me, I'm glad that it exists. So I think I just want to be one of those colors in the rainbow, you know, that gets to be out there.
1: And then if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself?
3: Uh, you weren't fat <laughs> Wow. <laughs> women like we waste so much of our brain space thinking about our looks and our weight and whether or not people like us and that to me is exhausting and boring and I bore myself with my own thoughts of it so I'd love to tell myself and everyone like just be kind to yourself and to everyone, you know, like, and stop worrying about those dumb things, like what you look like, or if you're fat or not, or if that person likes you or not.
2: Um, the most important question of the entire podcast uh, is making movies hard.
3: Yeah. I mean, the actual making of a movie is not hard. In between action and cut, it's not hard at all. It's amazing. But all the rest of it, getting the project off the ground, you know, interacting with everybody before action and after cut, doing all the posts, doing all the distribution, all of that stuff is hard. The hard, the easy part is in between action and cut. That's it, we did it. No, I need more social interaction. (laughs) You mean I have to go back and help my kids on their fucking Zoom classes again?
1: (laughs) Well, before you do that, tell everyone where they should go if they want to learn more about you.
3: Oh, well, my website is just my name, Amber Sealy, S-E-A-L-E-Y. Dot com and um yeah I'm, I'm just working on the edit for no man of god and that will come out soon somehow instagram is amber Seely film and then i have twitter that i think i post i mean i think i tweet like once every six months like something political or something i'm not a i'm really not good at social media i should be better at it
2: thank you for that it was one of our best conversations thanks guys thanks for having me Thank you for listening. Thanks to Amber Seely, the wonderful Amber Seeley uh, for making this episode happen. Check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode, including um, Get Shorty rehearsal by Courtney Theron. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at MMIH podcast. I am Liz Manichell on Twitter and Liz Manichell film on Instagram. Ulrich, where are you?
3: I am
1: all rb on Twitter and also on Instagram. And then I'm also on Facebook. So you can find me there too.
2: Accepts all friendships, right? So mm-hmm, that's your, mm-hmm, that's your mandate.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless you're a bot and you're trying to, you know, yeah. Do some sexual things. No, thanks.
2: <laughs> cool. If you like our show, tell a friend, help us get the word out, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks all to all of y'all for listening and talk to you next week. But it's, it's going. This is horrible. Did 86 this?
1: This is all staying in. <laughs>